Hi, welcome to the analysis.news. I'm Paul Jay. In just a few seconds, I'll be back with Larry Wilkerson, and we're going to talk about the results of the U.S. midterm elections. Please don't forget, there's a donate button. Uh, we're heading towards the end of the year when a lot of people are thinking about donating. We are a 501c3 in the United States. Uh, we're not in Canada or other places, but I hope you donate anyway. And the best way to donate is come to the website if you're not already watching on the website at theanalysis.news. Click the donate button and, and off you go. And also please subscribe to the email list. Be back in just a few seconds with Larry Wilkerson. So on Tuesday, the midterm elections were almost over. The so-called red wave didn't happen, as everyone has commented on, and the Democratic Party got a reprieve uh, from total disaster, although it looks like they will lose control of the House. Uh, they're not the only ones that got a reprieve. I guess you can say all of us got a kind of reprieve, because uh, at least the far-right Christian nationalists, fascists, and batshit crazy forces uh, didn't take total control of Congress, uh, and they lost some important governorships, uh, and this didn't do as well as expected, although they still control many state legislatures and, and governors, and as I say, will probably wind up in control of the House. Uh, I say a reprieve because if the economists are correct, and, and, and many are predicting, including many senior figures on Wall Street are predicting, we are heading into a recession. And if the current economic policies are not changed and we do head into a recession, then look out for the presidential elections and, of course, congressional again, the House elections and such in 2024, because if they take place in the midst of a recession, then, of course, the economy will be about the only story, unless, of course, we're in the midst of some kind of nuclear war, but then it won't matter. Uh, so all of that said, I have a little more to say about all this, but before I do, I'd like to introduce our guest, Colonel Larry Wilkerson, Lawrence Wilkerson, was the Chief of Staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell, uh, and he's a regular on the analysis.news, and so I don't think he needs a heck of a lot more in, uh, in, introduction. Thanks very much, Larry, for joining us again. Good to be with you. So the American people uh, who voted uh, expressed more rationality than was expected. Uh, I think and, that's clearly. I, I'd say it's kind of a temporary reprieve. But w what do you make of why there wasn't the traditional uh, swing to the party not in power, not in the White House? The three people that I've read today, while I was watching, listening to the National Symphony Orchestra play Debussy and Wagner and others looking at my phones surreptitiously, um, they said abortion was the biggest issue. Parsing it state by state, they said abortion was the biggest issue, and therefore the Democrats made an error. They should have pushed that issue, pushed that issue, pushed that issue right up to the last minute. Now, of course, that might have backfired had they pushed it so hard. But that was in most states that they've done some reasonable polling in, why did you vote this way afterwards? Um, it's abortion. And women were the big turnout factor, <laughs> as you might imagine. Mm -hmm. So that was the number one. The other issues sort of 
parsed out over the states, whatever the state happened to be, whether it was, you know, Wisconsin or Michigan or Pennsylvania or Pennsylvania. One political scientist said, well, you know, when you have a nut running, the other guy has a pretty good chance. And I, I assume he was talking about the governor's race. Um, but it, 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 it was different issues across the country in terms of second. But abortion was the top one. That, that's what they all said anyway in their reports. I thought the fact that over and over again in the media, without almost any pushback, the odd one, but almost none, the fact that the economy was equated as a strength for the Republican Party, yeah. and that inflation as an issue somehow favored the Republicans. And I thought it's the fact that the Democrats, except for a few exceptions and a few media pundits, mostly didn't push back on that. They kind of accepted the fact that the economy was a strength for the Republicans, so they had to fight on the issue of democracy and abortion. But I looked at a very interesting study because, you know, for the Democrats, as much as I can't stand the corporate Democrats, uh, for them to acknowledge, accept in a way, that the bailout packages were fundamentally responsible for, the infl for inflation, uh, which is what was said over and over again by Republicans. I saw one, uh, Chris Christie on uh, Stephanopoulos' show Sunday morning. Uh, Donna Brazile was opposite him. And he says, well, we're going to win because of inflation in the economy, and everybody blames the inflation on the Democrats, and they deserve to be blamed. And she doesn't push back on that. I'll take Larry Summers' word for it, okay? Um, Larry Summers, Clinton's Treasury Secretary, told the Biden administration two years ago, you go ahead with the spending you're talking about, and you are going to create enormous inflation, and it's exactly what happened. And we can try to blame it on a whole bunch of other things, but when you put $5 trillion that you printed into the economy after all the money that we put in during COVID, that's why you have inflation. And, you know, the fact is that it's got to stop at some point. And the Democrats don't want to talk about that because their constituencies are all about paying me more. In the end, in the end, Sarah's right that they ceded this ground to Republicans because they knew that Joe Biden couldn't articulate the argument as to why he was better. Well, it's an interesting study done by the San Francisco Federal Reserve. In fact, two studies where they analyzed the big bailout packages uh, during the Biden administration, uh, stimulus packages that put a lot of money in people's pockets, the, the maximum inflationary power of those uh, subsidies was maybe added 3% to inflation. Now, this is at a time when this all begins, when inflation was practically zero anyway. So the, the actual stimulus packages might have given a 3% inflation rate, which is actually not so terrible. Uh, it means that you know, it's relatively healthy to have inflation down around 3 maybe 2%. The 8% and maybe more inflation comes from uh, the U.S., uh, sorry, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the increased energy prices, supply chain problems, semiconductor problems, uh, on and on with global supply chain. Um, so the, the vast majority of the increased uh, inflation had absolutely nothing to do 
with government spending. And then number two, because the, the, the effect of those government stimulus plans that put money in people's pockets is pretty much gone because that stimulus money is not flowing anymore. So the current inflation rate has next to nothing to do with government spending. It might have a minor piece, but very minor. Well, but why would you doubt for a moment that the media and the Republicans read the media better than the Democrats wasn't going to support the idea of inflation being Biden's fault? Because they're not going to point out what really is causing the problem, and that is the damn war in Ukraine and those things associated with it, um, and COVID, as you pointed out. But I dare say the war in Ukraine and the supply side problems it's created and the chain problems it's created and everything from fertilizer to food is causing more of this than anybody else wants to say, including the government, because they never do anything in reporting inflation except ambiguity and lies. They pull things out and say, oh, this is food and this is gas. And they pull another thing out and say, oh, this is houses. It's crazy. If you looked at the whole inflation business, you'd probably find that Ukraine is the number one cause, the war in Ukraine. I I agree with that to a large extent. But let me just add another point. This report from the San Francisco Fed said not only was inflation maximum maybe 3% because of government spending, but if there hadn't been that government spending, if there hadn't been the stimulus, it says there would have been deep recession, which would have been far more difficult to deal with than a temporary 3% of inflation. Now, the other big piece piece of inflation, which I agree with the war in Ukraine is a major part, and it's, you know, the Russian invasion and such, but also the rising tension with China, uh, the threat, the the fear uh, amongst the corporate elites, and it's a legitimate fear, although it's a, a large extent stoked by the American government, that China may not be a reliable producer for the American products anymore. And they they fear about the global supply chain. And all of this adds up to the fundamental fear they have, which is the thing that terrifies corporate America, including corporate America that backs the Democratic Party, which is the American working class, for the first time in decades, actually has some leverage. There's a lot of jobs not filled out there. Actually, wages are actually going up some. There's some rising militancy in the American working class. And nothing scares American corporate elites more than the American workers actually start to wake up. Maybe there's even some reflection of that in these elections. So I think the Democratic Party, corporate leaderships at least, didn't really want to unpack uh, the, how benign the government spending was. Because corporate America now wants austerity, they want high interest rates, and they want to beat back any feeling amongst American workers that they actually have some strength and might unionize, might go on strike, which many are doing. I, I think the, the media really astonishes me with this war in Ukraine and how they've played it to the maximum extent possible on our side, on the West side, and so forth. And I think the money that's being spent on that and the money that's being spent in anticipation of Zelensky not giving up, the money that's being spent on NATO in general is money that's going down a toilet. 
And pretty soon, that's going to have an even more dramatic effect on our financial situation, our economic situation, the world economic situation, than other things, because it's doing things that are not healthy for the future of Europe's economy or our economy. Take Germany, for example, where there is real discussion going on about its manufacturing leaving Germany because of the situation facing them in terms of energy. Uh, Nord Stream didn't do any good to that. Nord Stream probably made a lot of corporate leaders in Germany decide that their energy future was so tenuous that they're going to relocate. I'm, I'm told they're out there scouting right now. Um, they're probably not going to move to China, <laughs> but they might move some aspects of their manufacturing to China. Most people don't realize that Germany is one of the few manufacturing countries left in the world. It's actually 20 to 21% of its economy is manufacturing, whereas France is about 7%, the U.S. is about 9%. Um, we just aren't manufacturing countries anymore in the West. Now, a 9% portion of the U.S. GDP devoted to manufacturing is bigger than most other countries in the world manufacturing uh, because we're so gigantic in terms of our base. But it does indicate how much our GDP and how much our production has turned into, I hesitate to use the word production, moving money around. Whether it's the Bank of International Settlements or it's the New York Fed, which works with the BIS, or it's some of these other crazy things that we do today with money that really fuels the coffers of the 0.001%, not just in the U.S., but in the world, but in the U.S. first. That's the thing where our hegemony really matters. Um, that's what we do. And when you take a country like Germany, which still is a good, solid manufacturing country, and you start doing this sort of thing to it, then you're disrupting the whole pattern of post-war Europe. And I don't think that's good. I really don't. I, I'm all for both Germany and Japan being treated not as World War II pariahs, but as first-class, you know, decent democratic states today. But there is an impetus to give them problems that I would not rather give them, like Japan having to decide whether it's going to go nuclear or not in the face of this incredibly stupid, maniacal re-emphasis of nuclear weapons. That would be, I think, very dangerous if Japan would up full up nuclear. And on the other hand, if we drove Germany into some kind of isolation in Europe and, and made her feel like she had to fall back on her own uh, recognizance all the time, and she started doing things that weren't necessarily healthy for the rest of Europe. We don't have to consult history too closely to figure out that this is the sort of thing that happens. I don't. It's not anything in the character of the Japanese or the character of the Germans. It's what their geography and the rest of the world forced them into because of their geography and because of the rest of the world's um, attitude towards that country and um, even connivance in making that country what it shouldn't be. Uh, and, and a great case in point is when Helmut Kohl said, do you really want, after we unified Germany, it to be a member of NATO? Or do you want it to be a neutral? And everybody said, of course, we want it to be a member of NATO. We want it to be the most powerful European member of NATO. Um, okay, think about that for a minute. Just think about history, think about geography, think about Moscow, and think about that for a minute before you so, I mean, this is a German saying that, <laughs> you know, and yet we went ahead and did what we did, and then we amplified the problem tenfold, hundredfold, by 
saying, bye, Germany, we're going to go that way. We're going to go past you. We're, we're going to go to Poland. We're going to go to Hungary. We're going to go oh Finland and Norway and other countries finally. We've made NATO such an in, untenable organization now that I'm more worried about our attempt to reestablish our ultimate hegemony over Europe through NATO than I am the economic situation. And that takes a lot to make me worry more about that than the economy. And they're very tied together because, as yes. you said, uh, the yes. war in Ukraine is what drove. I, I don't want to. I should go back. I don't want to say war in Ukraine because it sounds like it's some abstraction. The Russian yes. invasion, the illegal Russian and brutal invasion of Ukraine, uh, without doubt provoked, but still Russia's choice to do it. That said, drove energy prices up, which is the biggest factor that drove inflation up. And up until now, uh, I think domestic politics in Russia, domestic politics in the United States was driving this policy more than anybody's security concerns. Of course, Ukraine had legitimate security concerns. They just got invaded. But now that the midterms are over, are we seeing a little hair of rationality in the Biden administration on Ukraine and even on China? I, I, I read a report yesterday that under American pressure, Zelensky withdrew his statement that he would refuse to negotiate with Russia until Putin was gone. Right. Uh, well, that's something. Uh, that's something and big. And I saw that Biden's going to uh, meet with Xi in the, in the, in, in the next few weeks. Uh, that's something. And it sounds like there's going to be maybe a rational conversation between uh, U.S. and China. And I'm it wondering is, if there's some p domestic political pressure off Biden now that he can... I hope so. So one-sided. I, I, I said that a couple of weeks ago. I said, I, I want to see what Biden does, win or lose in the midterms, what he does when the political pressure is off him and he can show some ankle on Ukraine. Will he then turn to diplomacy? Because I know Joe Biden knows diplomacy is the only answer to this conflict. But I also know that he knew I'm 40% in the polls and sinking further and the midterms are coming up and we're going to get blasted if I suddenly say I'm going to Geneva and sit down with Putin. That would that would have been the media would have just ripped him apart almost the way they ripped Marshall apart when he came home from China and lost China. I mean, we do those sorts of things. So it, it was inevitable. And I know Biden knew that. So I'm hoping, as you said, on both counts, China and Ukraine, uh, Moscow, he sees an opportunity to do some things afterwards. Not that he was mightily empowered by the midterms, but he certainly wasn't disemboweled. Um, it might yeah, have been well, even that... more emphatic, though, if he were disempowered significantly. If they'd really lost badly, then they, he would have thought, well, I can go out and at least have a foreign policy triumph, or I can do something that defies the media and the people and turn it into a positive, like Nixon did when he went to China, for example. Got nothing to lose, in other words. Well, you can say now he's got a little more to lose, but I think it's still time, and I think he'll realize that. And I hope he puts Blinken in a, a, a straitjacket, because Blinken has shown me that he doesn't know how to be a diplomat. He has no clue about what it takes to be a diplomat. My my most optimistic hope, and I, I, I and what's the word? I uh, optimistic hope, low expectation is that Biden will realize that if they want to win in 2024, they have to stop a deep recession from setting in and do everything they can. 
And if the Republicans control uh, the House, they're not going to be able to pass probably any more stimulus unless somehow he can do something by executive order. His one way of doing this is get a deal in Ukraine, let energy prices get back to where they were, give up any notion of bringing down Putin's uh, government. And again, be careful what you wish for, because from what I know of Russian domestic politics, which is very little, but from what I'm told from people who do, uh, you know, you're as likely to get someone more militarist, more fascistic than Putin. There's no reason to think if Putin falls, you're going to get some, uh, you know, pro-Western figure in there. Not that being not that being pro-Western so great either. That said, be careful what you wish for with the fall if there is the fall of Putin. But if they can get energy prices back down to pre-war levels. Uh, I would think that would go a long way to at least making this recession minor and maybe no recession at all. So maybe there's some this election gives Biden the wherewithal to do that because nothing is going to help him more in the elections uh, than, than getting energy prices down. I think you're right. I, and I think it's going to be a harder row than maybe you think to hold because I think the Saudis and OPEC plus and OPEC itself are going to be really pegged on that price per barrel that they've been pretty much fixed at. And it's not, as a number of people have pointed out lately, not trying to defend the Saudis, but trying to show the rationale. It's a very logical rationale for why they're at where they are right now and don't want to go too much lower, nor go too terribly much higher. It's the old ball game of don't want to incentivize too fast renewable energy sources and we have to have what we're getting at the bottom of our price range in order to fulfill MBS's plan. And they can't go below that for more than a month or so, or their plan just gets tubed. Um, so the Saudis are, are very logical about this. It has nothing to do, I don't think, with their angst over Khashoggi and our emphasis on it or the Yemen war or whatever. That's not the way the Saudis deal. They're purely pragmatic. And even MBS is made to be pragmatic by the plans he has for the future, which are going to cost a certain amount of money and which in, in, in real life he is heavily indebted for already. And I don't just mean monetary debt. Um, if he doesn't keep that range, then it's curtains for him, I would estimate. And a lot of people like me who are yeah. more expert than I estimate the same thing. So trying to get that price down uh, anything, anywhere below that bottom figure the Saudis are looking at, looking at in their scale is probably going to be difficult because I suspect also that if Putin's still around or whatever Russian leader is still around, they'll agree with that and they'll stay at that. That's all about yeah. geopolitical developments between Moscow and Riyadh and Beijing and Riyadh. And to a certain well, extent, it's in, Delhi. It's in China's interest to get energy prices down, too. They don't yeah, but not as us. long as they're getting it at a cut rate price from Russia. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And that's kind of what they're doing in order to not say too much adverse about Ukraine. <laughs> well, I, I agree with you. I'm no expert on oil prices either, but oil prices were down significantly lower than they are now prior yep. to the well, Russian I don't know invasion. what the bottom is now. The bottom was about... And, 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 the bottom was, I was just about going to say, if we are headed into, sorry, go ahead. 
No, the bottom was about the bottom of the range was about fifty five fifty six dollars uh, a barrel, but that was when we were doing the exercises in Beijing at the end of the first decade of this century. I don't know what it is now. I suspect it's probably around eighty eight, eighty nine, somewhere in that neighborhood. You know, he was saying the other day that it's one hundred and twenty five, one hundred and thirty. I don't think it's that high. That might be the top part that doesn't incentivize faster development of alternative energy and therefore leave them with trillions of dollars of stranded assets because it'll be in the ground and they haven't got money out of it when we when we transition. Well, are you seeing some of the signs that maybe Biden is more open now? Yes, to pushing I think so. the Ukrainians to negotiate a deal. I, I think it's just inevitable from the politics of it. Uh, it, it's hard because the media has made such a cause celebre of this of this war. They they've made it such a you know white Christian nationalist uh, blah blah blah. This is this is this is the war. This is the war we want to be in. This is World War Two revisited. And so they will probably fall off of that rapidly after the winter. But right now that's what it is. So he's still got to fight that and in the media what's the media going to say what's going to be the headline above the fold new york times washington post when he decides to do diplomacy is it going to be favorable is it going to be neutral is it going to be favorable are they going to be encouraging what are they going to write and what's the editorial page of the wall street journal going to write um that's the republican my feeling is there is a there is a mood building for negotiation i hope so I hope and so. Zelensky, I can't imagine how they're not going to have to give up on Crimea because if yeah. if they push that, well, he said today, uh, or, or I read today, I think in the New York Times, uh, a quote of him where he said, uh, "We took uh, uh, what's the city they just got back? It just went out of my head. Kirsten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can if we if we did that, we can take Crimea back. Oh, okay." Mm. Well, that, the, the, that's the Russians not cannot cannot <laughs> live with that. No, I don't think and, so. And, and, and the thing about this, and I want to keep saying this again, because a lot of these geopolitical conversations don't talk about this. The issue is tens of thousands of people are dying. I heard today Millie thinks 100,000 Russian soldiers have died. They think more than that, more than 100,000 Ukrainian soldiers have died. Tens of thousands and thousands, I don't know what the number is now, of Ukrainian civilians have died. This has to stop for those reasons. And, uh, you know, this abstraction of having to defend every inch of Ukrainian sovereignty. Well, uh, it's always the people who don't have to stand there with a bayonet and man the foxhole or the tank or the artillery piece who are saying that. It's rarely the personnel on the front line, unless the personnel on the front line is a propagandist. Thanks very much for joining me, Larry. Thanks for having me, Paul. And thanks for joining us on the analysis.news. Please don't forget the donate button at the top of the website. Mm-hmm.